welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Hello and welcome to the last episode for 2018. I'm recording this in early December, uh, just before Australia closes down for summer. So it's the best time of the year in Australia for uh, being outside. It's warm, it's sunny, it's uh, lots of outdoor activities, and we're coming up to Christmas and New Year. Uh, Somebody said to me, kind of half-jokingly, that in Australia things close down from Melbourne Cup Day to Australia Day. So for those who don't know, Melbourne Cup Day is in early November, and Australia Day is the end of January. January. So that's three months, and it's a bit of an exaggeration, but it's not that far from the truth. Certainly, there are a lot of businesses who close down at this time of the year, uh, and on the other hand, there are other businesses that really ramp up. So especially if you're in retail, this might be your busiest month or two in the entire year. But for many organizations, professional organizations, uh, this is the quietest time of the year for them. I certainly know that's true for the conference-speaking part of my business, where there are very few conferences in December and January. So that part of my business really goes through a quiet time. But of course, other parts of business are still active. For example, there are a lot of people now who are doing the strategic planning for the next year and the next five years. And they take this opportunity as we get to the end of one calendar year and the start of the next, where they're looking ahead. And I'm doing quite a bit of work facilitating strategic planning with leadership teams and organizations. Also, as people are looking at their training and development for the year ahead, now is when they're starting to do their planning and they're putting things in place for ongoing learning for their people and for themselves. And of course, it's a really important thing to do because um, we need to be constantly learning and constantly upskilling. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on in this episode. So today I want to talk about the future of work and specifically how to create the best workplace on earth. And this is a topic that I've been speaking about for quite a long time, particularly the idea of the future of work. So if you want to know what's work going to look like in the future, there are a lot of people who will tell you things like the workplace will change. So people will be doing more distributed work, so not necessarily in the same office. The skills that we need for the future will change because the skills that have worked in the past, like technical skills and knowledge-based skills, are not the skills that are going to lead you into the future. And then the flip side of that is what sort of workplace do we need to create in our organizations to attract the best talent, if you like, to attract the top performers, the, uh, the, the leaders of the future, the people who at the moment have a choice of place to work. And the real question is, will they choose to work at your workplace? So what do you need to do to create the best workplace on earth? So if you think about the skills of the future and the best workplace on earth, they're two sides of the same coin. One is, what skills do we need for the future? And then second, how do we create a workplace that will attract the sort of people who have those skills and, of course, who want to stay and working for us. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And there are a lot of organizations, futurist organizations, that look at the skills for the future. Uh, one of them is a World Economic Forum, and they have this year published their Future of Jobs report for 2018. And what they do is they try to identify what countries and uh, organizations in those countries are going to need in terms of skills for their workers. And they've done this for many countries around the world. And if you've thought at all about what the future of work is going to look like, then you can probably guess what some of the skills the World Economic Forum has identified for the future. 
For example, when they looked at Australia, and this is common to many countries around the world, these are the sort of things that came at the top of the list for what they call emerging skills. And these are skills that the World Economic Forum thinks that Australian workplaces will need in the next four years. So we're not talking about the distant future. We're talking about 2022. So here's some of the skills. Creativity, originality and initiative. That's under one category. Leadership and social influence. Leadership is still an important skill, but let's examine that carefully. So we're talking about leadership and social influence. So you're no longer considered a leader because of what's on your business card or how big the office is or what's in your pay packet, but you're considered a leader based on your influence. Are you an influencer? So in other words, you're a leader because you are an authority, not just because you have been given authority. Um, Another one is analytical thinking and innovation. Another one is emotional intelligence. So this is sometimes called EQ. So it's a parallel to IQ. So if if you think about IQ as being critical thinking and analytical thinking, which is also important, EQ is about people skills. It's a combination of how well you understand yourself as well as how well you understand other people. Another skill is active learning. So we all know how to learn. But many of us don't know how to unlearn and relearn. And that's a real skill. And it's a skill that most of us weren't taught and didn't pick up even in our school education. So just look at those top five. Creativity and originality, leadership and social influence, analytical thinking, emotional intelligence and active learning. How different those are from the skills that we needed in workplaces 15 or 20 years ago. A whole world has changed and particularly the skills that we need for success in the future have changed. And this is why it's so important to create what I'm going to call the best workplace on earth. Because if you're a leader or you're in HR, what you want are the people who've got those skills or willing to acquire those skills in your workplace. And there's there's good news and bad news. The good news is those people are out there. The bad news is they've got a choice of places to work. I'm sure you'd have heard of the war for talent. We are in a war for talent at the moment. And the organizations that that will succeed are those that will win that war for talent. So let's have a look at what we need to create the best workplace on earth. And there are five things we're going to examine. So before we get into that, let me share one of my favorite principles when you think about your teams. And the principle is this, that there is an I in team. So we used to say there is no I in team, but now the skills, the talents, the initiative, the uniqueness of the individuals in your team, they make up your biggest competitive advantage. Let me tell you about my niece, Abby. She's now 13, going on 14, but when she was 10, she used to love Lego friends. And when she outgrew her Lego friends' toys, she sold them on Gumtree. The deal in her family, which her parents set up for her, was that she could keep half the proceeds and then she'd donate the other half to a charity of her choice, which was a local dog's home. And what she used to do when she used to sell these on Gumtree was she'd set a pretty attractive price so that they'd sell really fast. And generally, she sold them within an hour of advertising it. So this is when she was 10. So at that tender age, Abby was already learning about online trading, about marketing, about social responsibility, and a whole new idea about ownership. Now, my 19-year-old stepdaughter, who's uh, also coincidentally named Abby, has just finished her second year of studying physiotherapy at university, and she's pretty good at the course, and she studies very hard, but already Even though she's still only a teenager, she's already had six part-time jobs, uh, coaching gymnastics, babysitting, working at a supermarket checkout, managing events, working in hospitality at a sports stadium, and being a sports trainer for a footy team. Now, both of my Abbeys are a few years away from entering the full-time workforce. 
but just look at the skills and experience that they already have. And you already have other Abbeys in your organization. And there are other people who are assessing whether they should be joining your organization or another one. And these are the smart, talented, innovative people who want to make a difference in the world. And we're already seeing significant changes in the nature of work. And the workplace of the future is going to be very different from the workplace now. It'll be much more common to change jobs more regularly, to switch careers every few years, to work shorter hours and work multiple part-time jobs. So as leaders and managers and HR directors, we have to be willing to create that kind of workplace, that kind of flexibility, and it will be very different from the workplace of the past. So if you're leading a team or an organization in this new world of work, you're going to face different responsibilities and have different challenges than you do now. And the biggest shift is the shift to individual power and influence. And that's why I say that we used to say there's no I in team, but there is an I in team now. Those star performers have more influence, power and access than ever before, and they'll bring them to work to assist you and your organization if you let them and if you provide the sort of workplace where they want to work. The best people want different things now. Many leaders just don't know what they are and how to create that workplace. So what happens is even if you happen to attract the best people, they might stay for a while. They're hoping that they're going to be attracted and inspired and motivated, but eventually they get pulled away by a stronger magnet and they leave. And the problem is that many leaders and managers just don't know how to lead teams in a disruptive, fast-changing world. And this is true even if you're an experienced leader. Maybe I should say especially if you're an experienced leader, because what used to work just doesn't work anymore, and you need new strategies to lead and manage effectively. You probably know that for many decades, Gallup, the Gallup organization, has been conducting employee engagement research. And in the 1990s, a generation ago, employees wanted things, according to Gallup, Things like superannuation, flexible holidays, and other benefits provided by their employer. Now, these are all worthwhile benefits to offer, but they're just the price of entry now. They're no longer the most desirable things. And when two Harvard researchers recently looked at uh, what employees want now, they published in the Harvard Business Review what makes up the best workplace on earth. And what they identified were a different set of benefits. And these are exactly what disruptive organizations offer now to attract and retain the best talent. But it's not just for disruptive organizations. They just happen to be right at the pointy end of entrepreneurship. It's for every organization if you want to attract and keep those star performers the best talent. So there are five things. I'll give you an overview now, and then we'll go into each one of them in detail. So number one, fit versus diversity. Now, it's still important to find people who fit with the rest of the team, especially when we're talking about shared values, because you want that sort of alignment. But it's just as important to bring diverse thinking to the team by attracting people who aren't a perfect fit. Number two, information versus authority. So everybody has more information than ever before. But people also need the authority to act on that information and even act on misinformation or partial information or new information without having to go back to their boss every time something new occurs. Number three is about training versus talent. Now, of course, training is still important. You must provide training and ongoing development in those sort of formal ways. But it's just as important to learn from those talented individuals. So don't just think about training them. Also think about what you can learn from them. Regardless of their role, experience or seniority, there's always things you can learn. The next one is about engagement versus meaning. So 
everyone's talking about employee engagement how, and how important it is to engage your workers and what sort of engagement strategies you have in place. But if you provide work that's meaningful and you give people a place where they feel proud to work, then the engagement happens automatically. It's not something that you have to sprinkle on top of the workplace cake to give it flavor. It's something that's baked in right from the start. And the last one is policy versus judgment. Official policies just can't keep up with a fast-changing complex world. The best organizations build the judgment of their team members and then allow them to exercise that judgment rather than always slavishly following the policies. So if you look at those five things, these are profound shifts in thinking, especially for experienced leaders who've always done things the old way. So Let's explore each of these five areas in turn so you can shift your mindset to the new disruptive team that creates the best workplace on earth. Let's start by talking about diversity. I want you to mix up your thinking. Encourage diversity across your team so you can tap into their unique skills and talents. Let me start with a story. In 2015, as part of his advertising campaign to attract new mobile phone customers, Optus one of Australia's telecommunication providers, unveiled advertising throughout shopping centres around Australia, including one in Sydney's southwest. It's an area that has a significant Arabic-speaking population. So, because Optus wanted those customers, they've used posters written in Arabic to explain that the staff members in the shop spoke Arabic. Now, because it was in Arabic, it really enraged some of the residents who they just seemed to be confused by the differences between Arabic, Syria, Islam and terrorism. And uh, on the Optus customer forum, they, uh, they just had the angriest rants. And the Optus staff in the store faced such serious threats that eventually Optus was forced to remove the posters. But of course, the forum, the online forum, was still open and there were still people ranting and raving on the forum. And during the height of the conflict on the online forums, one Optus customer's forum representative, who was known only as Dan from Optus, he stood out for his firm but fair and reasonable approach to this customer backlash. And some of them weren't even customers, they were just local residents. For example, when one woman wrote, this is Australia, not Islam, on the Optus Facebook group, Dan politely and calmly replied, Australia is a country, while Islam is a religion. The language used in the sign was Arabic, which is also spoken by a number of non-Muslim countries. Uh, when somebody called Jason Wyatt suggested that Dan might be a Muslim himself, he replied, um, I have no religious ties, but it would be an easy assumption to make since I openly display love and compassion, which are among the values of the Islamic faith. So now his approach earned him a lot of praise and his responses went viral. And, you know, his responses didn't come from an Optus customer service script, but it came because a company allowed him to share openly, passionately and compassionately and they allowed him to speak from his unique perspective. He wasn't typing from the Optus handbook. The company allowed him the flexibility to share his uniqueness. So here's the point. In the old days, say in Henry Ford's day, each worker on an assembly line had a very specific role. And it was an advantage for that worker to just follow the instructions strictly and never deviate from their process. But those days are long gone, long, long gone. In our now, in our fast-changing world, 
diverse thinking in your team is not just desirable, it's essential. And diverse thinking is a win-win idea. It helps you tackle new problems and it helps your team members leverage their unique skills and talents. Now, of course, your team can't always engage in diverse thinking and go off in different directions because that's not appropriate in every situation. The best teams strike the right balance between diverse thinking and shared goals. And when you combine diversity and focus, you find four different kinds of thinking and each one of them might be relevant in certain circumstances. So think about people who think the same way, let's call that similar thinking, and the opposite of that is diverse thinking. And then think about what sort of work they're working on. Are they focused working on specific goals or is it vague work, which might be the kind of routine work? So if you look at that on two dimensions, we actually get four possibilities. So the first one is fixed thinking. So fixed is where you've got people with a similar mindset working on vague work. So not very focused. And in most workplaces, this, this is the default mode. People mostly do routine work, and if you're lucky, they might have occasional flashes of brilliance. So they bond through their similarities, and they, because they don't have specific goals, there's no need to stretch their thinking or to think differently. The next one is narrow thinking. So you go from this, these people who've got fixed thinking, and many leaders try to break people out of that by giving them a clear focus at an individual, a team, or an organizational level. In fact, that's the way that most projects work. You set a goal, share that goal with the team, and then work towards it. Now, narrow thinking is useful for project work, but it's not so useful for innovation and change because it can lead to groupthink, where you end up with bad ideas just because everybody agrees with them. So the opposite of that is wide thinking. So this is where you might try to break out of fixed thinking by increasing their diversity of thinking in the team. Now, you can do this from natural sources like diversity in age or gender or culture or by artificial means. So you have things like creative exercises or off-site retreats or flexible workplaces. Now, this can create new ideas, and it's a good idea to diversify and expand your thinking, but it runs the risk of just creating a talk fest because you get lots and lots of ideas, but often not many results. And many of those initiatives that are started, they fall by the wayside because they're not seen as providing great results. You don't get much of a return on investment because you're not focused. So the best of both worlds is where you have sharp thinking. So this is where you have a diverse group of thinkers and you give them a clear focus. And the diversity generates more ideas and the focus means that you narrow and sharpen those ideas towards specific goals. Now, all of those four thinking styles and those four collaboration styles have their place. Unfortunately, many workplaces only offer fixed or narrow thinking on a regular basis. Now, that doesn't help your team members share their uniqueness, and it usually keeps your team and organization too closely tied to the past instead of thinking ahead to the future. So here are three questions you can ask to evaluate your own diversity in your team. So first of all, do you really embrace diversity and uniqueness? Now, embracing means going further than just tolerating or accepting it, but looking at diversity and uniqueness as positive things in your workplace and your team. Second question, how do you give team members the opportunity to engage in sharp thinking? Remember, sharp thinking is diverse ideas with a clear focus. And last, how are you exposing yourself to more diversity in thinking in your own life? So that's number one, the shift from fit to diversity. The next one's about authority. I want you to follow the principle of pushing authority to information. So they already know what to do. 
give them the power to do it. Again, let me start with the story. This is a story from the turn of the century, 1999. In Pearl Harbor, David Marquette, who was in charge of the US Navy's nuclear submarine Santa Fe, was leading his crew through a series of training exercises. So they weren't out in, in active service at the time, they were just doing some training. And as you can imagine, a nuclear submarine is a complex, complex machine. So they were six months away from active deployment, but they were doing a whole bunch of drills, inspections and simulated ex- exercises. And one of the exercises was where the engineer deliberately shut down the nuclear reactor. And then they were looking at how well the crew could deal with the situation. They had a checklist to follow. So the, the whole process, the drill, was how well the crew could follow that checklist. So... The engineer shut down the reactor, the submarine switched to battery backup, and the troubleshooters started working on the bridge, diligently working through their pre-planned checklist, looking to isolate the fault before the battery backup died. And Marquette was on the bridge, he was supervising, or rather observing, and he became bored. He admitted that he became bored, so he decided to up the ante, and he figured if he increased the submarine's speed that would increase the drain on the battery, which would mean that the crew had less time to sort out the problem. So he nudged his officer on deck and asked him to increase the speed from ahead one-third, so one-third of the full speed, to ahead two-thirds. So his officer on deck, Lieutenant Commander Bill Green, immediately barked out the order to the helmsman, ahead two-thirds, and then nothing happened. So nobody said anything. The helmsman didn't respond and Marquette was puzzled. And in fact, he noticed him kind of squirming in his seat. And so he asked the helmsman why he didn't do anything. And the helmsman replied, Captain, there is no two-thirds setting on this ship. Now Marquette realized that he'd probably been told this during his training, but he'd forgotten. This is the first time he'd worked on this class of submarine. So he later took Green this is the uh, officer on deck, he took him aside and asked him why he ordered it. And he said, did you know that there was no ahead two-thirds setting? And Green said, yep, he knew there was no ahead two-thirds, but he went ahead and ordered it because you told me to. And he he said, I thought he'd learned something secret at commanding commanding officer school that they only tell the commanding officers about. And Marquette was stunned. This was his first role commanding this type of submarine, so in effect he was one of the least experienced crew members. But because he had the title, his crew would respond automatically without question to his orders. So he resolved, in his own mind, at that time, to completely transform that culture. He wanted to go from a culture of command and control to a culture of empowerment. And he tells a story in his book, A Turn the Ship Around. So here's the point. All successful leaders and managers know how important delegation is. And you know this, especially if you experience, you delegate a lot. But many of them still do it in a way that doesn't really empower their team members. See, the process for successful delegation has changed. The old process is to ask your team member to do something, give them the information they need, the instructions, you check whether they know how to do it. When, you, when you're confident they can do it, then you get them to do the job. And maybe you create a series of check-ins along the way to ensure that they're on track. Now, typically, if something unexpected comes along, the team member would come back to their manager and alert them. Then the manager could decide how to deal with it. Sometimes they deal with it together. So this model is the old model. It's push information to authority. So any new information that comes in is pushed up the chain to a more senior person 
who then makes the decision and they have the authority to decide how to deal with that information. Now, the problem with that is that the team member never truly becomes empowered. Even if they learn from their manager, they only learn from observation and they never have to make those decisions themselves. They never have to take the responsibility of making those decisions. And this is what Marquette realized. To truly empower his team, he needed to turn that around. In other words, instead of saying push information to authority, he started employing the principle push authority to information. And those two approaches are polar opposites. They're diametrically opposed. So just think about authority and information. Now, if you give people authority to do something without enough information, then it's reckless. Okay, so you can't do that. You must give them the initial information they need, but you might be holding back authority. And that leaves them powerless to act on new information. And this creates a bottleneck. And what's a bottleneck? You are. Every time something unexpected crops up, and of course it happens a lot more now in our fast-changing world, they have to ask you for help. And even if you take the time to discuss your decision with them, it was still you who made the decision, or at least authorised the decision. So they might learn how to deal with that particular situation, but they haven't enhanced their own problem-solving skills. They certainly haven't built their own decision-making muscles. So the next time something else unexpected happens, they have to ask you again. And this is what Marquette realized. He knew that his team already knew most of what they needed to do. And in some cases, they even knew more than he did. But it would be difficult, it would be too big a change to simply ask them to make all decisions themselves without his input. Now, in fact, sometimes it would be negligent and reckless. So he eventually settled on a protocol that he later realized was exactly what his first commanding officer had done. So when a crew member faced a new situation... They decide for themselves what to do, and they have the authority to do it if they feel confident. If they want Marquette's input, they say to him, Captain, I intend to, blah, blah, blah. And more often than not, Marquette simply replies, go ahead. And on the very rare occasion that Marquette realizes that's a bad decision, he can put a stop to it. So what he's doing is he's pushing the authority to act to the people who have the information. So you empower your team, you remove yourself as a bottleneck, and you create a much more nimble organization. So are you doing that, pushing authority to information? Here are three questions you can ask yourself to check whether you're doing it and then to implement this in the future. Number one, do people have to push information to you for a decision? If so, how can you give them more authority in the future? Number two, what rules do you already have in your organization? And some of them are implicit in the culture or explicit in the system that currently get in the way of pushing authority to information. And number three, if you're not doing this enough already and you were to start pushing authority to your team members, who could you start with? Who could you use for a pilot project until you get familiar with the process and you feel if your team members become comfortable with it so that then you can roll it out to the rest of the team? So that's pushing authority to information. And it's the second thing you can do in creating the best workplace on earth. The third one is about talent. I want to talk about turning the tables on talent. So instead of being a mentor to more junior people, ask them to mentor you. There's a lot of things you can do around talent development, but one of the most effective is mentoring and in particular, I want to suggest that you do reverse mentoring. Now when I ask audiences how many people are involved in some sort of mentoring program Um, in many audiences especially with leaders many people put up their hand 
they are mentors. But when I ask how many of you do reverse mentoring, very few people put up their hand. In fact, most people don't even know what it is. Let me explain it to you, and I'll start with the story. Kelly Mooney, the CEO of the digital marketing firm Resource Initiative, every month has a meeting with Matthew Santoni. And Kelly asks Matthew for an update on the latest in brands, consumers, and technology. Now, the thing is that Matthew Santoni is many years her junior and many levels below her on the organizational level. But Mooney says that she eagerly looks forward to the opportunity of learning from him. So she says each month Matthew arrives with approximately 20 new things that should be on my radar. Cool campaigns, emerging trends, new innovations inside and outside our industry. And we sit shoulder to shoulder as he walks me through what each one is, why it made his list, and what I should know about it. So we discuss potential applications to our clients and our business, and each session is incredibly inspiring unlocking new ideas for me. So this is the idea of reverse mentoring. The younger, more junior people in an organization provide the mentoring for the older, more senior staff. This is not the only example. Janet Wilson, who's a CEO of a law firm in Brisbane, Cooper Grace Ward Lawyers, has an agreement with younger members of her firm to mentor her every month. And she says the conversations are inspirational, sometimes worrying, and always refreshing. I make them as casual and friendly as possible, and we have fun and lots of laughs, at each other's expense. So those are two examples. You can see that what Kelly Mooney does is a little bit more structured, where she asks her mentor to bring her a list of things to go through. And Janet's a little bit more informal, where she has a casual conversation with her mentor. Um, But in both cases, they're using this idea of reverse mentoring. Here's a point. With a traditional mentoring arrangement, the more experienced, more senior, usually the older person, shares their experience with the more junior people to fast-track their development. So the mentor offers something, their experience, that nothing else can provide, and that helps a mentoree build their judgment and eventually gain wisdom. That's good. Nothing wrong with that. And I'm not saying you should stop mentoring. But... I also think you should add reverse mentoring, which turns that idea on its head. This time it's a more junior person in the mentor role, and their biggest contribution is perspective rather than experience. It's not to say that they don't have experience or expertise. They're far from it. They absolutely do. Younger and more junior people often do have more expertise with things like social media, mobile devices, new learning tools, technology in general. But they also have expertise in other areas, things like consumer behavior. They know how people of their generation buy. They know about recruitment. You can often find new staff through the networks of your existing staff. They know about talent management. They value different things from a workplace and they might be quite different from what you think. Um, Things like money, they have different attitudes towards savings, wealth and retirement. But their biggest contribution is their different perspective on the world. And that helps the more senior people shake up their established viewpoints, which are often difficult to break down by themselves. Now, reverse mentoring, as with all good mentoring relationships, is a win-win experience for both people. If you're the more senior person, the person being mentored, then reverse mentoring accelerates your learning curve, gives your team members new opportunities, enhances morale, boosts productivity, and creates a closer team. And in return, you help your mentor grow by showing them how to build better judgment and hence gain wisdom. So in fact, you're mentoring them at the same time. But the main idea is that you sit back and listen and you learn from them. 
And you have to be careful not to discard their ideas too quickly just because you think they're naive, simplistic, or just won't work. Your main goal is to be open, not just apply a younger person for more information and data. And if you're not doing this already, engage a smart, savvy, younger person to be your reverse mentor for the next three months. Just meet with them casually, either in a structured way or an unstructured way, but just to listen to their insights, follow their advice, and resist the temptation to think that you're smarter just because you're older and more experienced. Once you've had experience with it yourself, I'm sure you'll find it's a very positive experience, and then extend the concept of reverse mentoring to other parts of your organization. Offer it to everybody so everybody has a chance to be involved in it. Here are three questions you can ask yourself about getting involved in reverse mentoring. Number one, the obvious one, who could be your reverse mentor at work? Number two, who among your peers could you connect with your more junior team members? Again, with the idea that the junior person acts as a mentor. And number three, how are you using reverse mentoring in your personal life? If you have teenagers at home, you've already got futurists living with you. Or there might be other young people who you could look at in your personal life as your mentor. So that's the idea of shifting from training to talent. The next one is looking at moving from engagement to meaning. And we're talking about a shared journey here. Share the journey. Offer work that gives people meaning where your employee's passion is aligned with your organization's purpose. So again, let me start here with a story. There's a small New York City-based organization that advertised for a graphic designer to add to its staff only 70 people and when they advertised more than 500 people applied and when they later advertised for a receptionist they had almost twice as many applications this is for a very small organization and it wasn't offering above average salaries they weren't offering lucrative stock options they weren't offering free food and massages for their employees in fact some employees were leaving those sort of perks in other jobs to join the list of applicants here That's because they want to work for this non-profit organization called Charity Water. Builds wells around the world to provide clean and safe drinking water for what we used to call the developing world. Now, founder Scott Harrison, who was a former nightclub promoter in Manhattan, started the organization in 2006 after he spent a couple of years in volunteer service in Liberia in West Africa. And when he returned, he founded that non-profit organization, which now helped over 8 million people. Now, it's not surprising that an organization with such a strong social purpose attracts like-minded employees. And Harrison himself proudly claims that people will happily give up other benefits to do work that matters. And everybody there knows that everything they do, directly or indirectly, helps families around the world. But Charity Water doesn't just do good on the outside. It was also named one of Inc. magazine's 2018 Best Workplaces for the way that they operate on the inside. Their internal practices reflect the brand values of kindness and caring, and they build a culture that attracts people who are also aligned with those values. For example, there's a strict no-swearing policy and an equally strict no-white-lies policy. And that puts it at odds with many other workplaces, which at least tolerate and sometimes condone and encourage activities like that. And Harrison admits that many of these ideas aren't original. He and his leadership team visit other great workplaces. They discover and notice what works best, and they borrow those ideas and bring them back to incorporate into the charity water culture. But they don't automatically adopt everything. Instead, they only choose what's consistent with their brand, so they can continue to create a place with meaningful work and where people will say they feel proud to belong. 
So here's the point. In the best workplace on earth, people won't just put up with a job that only gives them a simple exchange of time for money. They want a place where they can say they're proud to work and where their work has meaning. That means they know what we stand for, they value what we stand for, and they feel like they're making a difference in the world. If you want to build that sort of workplace, stand for something that matters. And then you'll attract people who want to do work that matters. Now that sense of pride doesn't only occur in a non-profit organization like Charity Water that reaches out around the world. It can occur in any organization, small or large, in any industry and in myriad ways. Now an organization like Charity Water started with this higher purpose goal. But that isn't always the case. Many organizations start by solving smaller, much more prosaic problems for their customers or help them reach some sort of small goal in their lives. Um, In fact, that was enough to thrive, because solving problems kept the business alive, and employees were happy enough to work for that kind of business. Now, don't get me wrong, solving customer problems is still important, but now it's just the price of entry. Employees expect more, and they want to work for an organization with a strong mission, values, and purpose. And this is the difference between offering a salary job and inviting people on a shared journey. If all other things are equal, they will choose a more exciting journey, wouldn't you? And even if all other things aren't equal, the best people will still choose that journey. And the secret to success in creating a shared journey is to combine passion with purpose. Now just be careful because some people confuse these two concepts, but they're very different things. And Morton T. Hansen explains it in his book, Great at Work. Passion is do what you love. Purpose is do what contributes. In other words, one is about how the world serves you and the other is about how you serve the world. Your team members do meaningful work when they can apply their passion to your purpose. So on the one hand, you have passionate people who are energized, excited and enthusiastic about their work. It gives them joy, it gives them pleasure, they find true meaning in it and they push through the tough times because they really, truly care. And these are all good things and they're exactly the people you want in your team and your organization. At the same time, being aligned with your purpose means they channel that passion to create true value. They understand how their job fits in with other parts of the team. They collaborate for this common cause and they measure their impact by external results rather than just their internal motivation, which they have, but that alone is not enough. It's aligned with external results as well. And this turns their passion into something meaningful for them and productive for you. So, Ask yourself these three questions about creating a workplace that offers meaning. Number one, how do you regularly connect the passion of your people with the purpose of your organization? Two, how do you connect your passion with the purpose of your team or your organization? And number three, what else can you do to provide more meaningful work for each person individually in your team? So that's the shift from just engagement to meaning. The last of the five things that make up the best workplace on earth is good judgment. So I want you to build judgment, not policies. Create processes that help them work, but don't get in the way with stupid rules. Let me tell you a story about Ségolène Royale. She was appointed France as Ecology and Energy Minister in 2014, and she tweeted about the instruction she had given to her staff. And she said, the only instruction given concerns using public funds with the utmost rigour, something the French expect of us. So what? That's hardly a controversial rule. Most ordinary citizens would think that's a great thing to do. But it was her other rules for staff, which she didn't so readily admit to, that drew ridicule from the public and earned her the nickname Iron Lady. 
So Royale, who ran in the 2007 presidential election and lost to Nicolas Sarkozy, was appointed to a ministerial role by the new French president, Francois Hollande, her former partner and father of her four children. Now, according to a ministry source, one of her first acts when taking up the new role was to create a strict code of conduct for her staff. And that was quickly leaked to the media, and they were happy to point out some of the more outrageous rules. For instance, it was reported that Royale insists on employees standing when she passes by. And to to ensure that they did so promptly, she employed an usher to announce her entrance. She also insists, supposedly, that when she eats in a private salon, other staff are not allowed in the corridor outside because it creates noise disturbance. Now, unfortunately, this blocks off access to the canteen for the staff, but at least Miss Royale can eat in peace. And perhaps the most controversial edict, which affects all the women in her staff, was a strict ban on low-cut tops that show any cleavage. Now, as soon as that was released and announced and made public, Le Figaro published a photograph of Miss Royale herself sporting a plunging neckline, and that led her issuing a swift denial. She said, I naturally deny the ridiculous rumour regarding the ban on low cleavage at the ministry. But she stopped short of denying any of the other rumoured rules, which various sources described as casting a frost over the ministry and her behaving like a royal. So here's the point. Most organisations don't start out to create a system of stupid rules, processes and procedures. But unfortunately, many do end up that way. And of course, that gets in the way of productive work and it generates resentment and ridicule among your team and your staff. So instead of policies, create guidelines and invest in building good judgment in your team and trust them to use that judgment when deciding when to follow the guidelines when to deviate from them, when to break the rules, and when they should stop and check in with you. That's the sort of thing that you can't write down in the rules. Only people who exercise good judgment can figure out the right time to do that. So as a leader, when you're faced with a decision, you've already got the benefit of experience. And that led to good judgment, which in turn leads to wisdom, so you know that you can make a wise decision, even if it's not strictly according to the rules. Your team members, when faced with the same decision, don't have that experience, that judgment and that wisdom. So what the best leaders do to accelerate the experience curve is they actively build good judgment in their team. There are many things you can do to build good judgment. If you think metaphorically, you look at them in three categories. Break down the walls, raise the roof, and open the door. So imagine a team member who's stuck in their tiny cubicle, and they get work fed in for them to do. And once they complete the work, they push it out again, and they get fed in another piece of work. Now, metaphorically... And many of your team members might feel like that. So how can you break down the walls, raise the roof and open the door for them? Well, breaking down the walls is helping them understand how their role fits with the rest of the team, the organization and the outside world. For example, you could get them to step into a co-worker's shoes through job swapping or shadowing or job sharing. You could show them how the output of their work is used by other people in the team and other people in the organization. You can let them watch people who deal directly with customers so they understand how their work eventually helps real customers. The next thing is raising the roof, which is exposing them to higher, or if you like, more senior roles, so they can see the bigger picture beyond their regular work. For example, you could ask them to attend your management meetings, so they see the higher-level goals and strategy. You could show them how you work in pressure situations, rather than shielding those situations for them. You could let them make some of the decisions you would usually make, so they learn decision-making skills. And then finally, opening the door gives them the chance to speak up and be heard, 
inside and outside the organization. For example, they could have a forum to offer advice to more senior people, including you, of course. They could represent the organization at networking functions, at conferences, professional association meetings, and other external events. And also, you could draw on their networks to help the team in the organization. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that building judgment happens overnight. It doesn't, but it also doesn't happen unless you actively start working on it. It's one of the best things that you can do in a fast-changing world where it's increasingly important to allow people to act independently. So here are three questions you can ask about building judgment in your team members. Number one, how often do you delegate decisions to others in your team with the mindset of, I trust your judgment? Number two, how can you regularly build the judgment of each of your team members? And the methods you use will vary for each one. Number three, how willing are you or reluctant are you to let team members make decisions for which you would be accountable? So, we've looked at the five things that make up the best workplace on earth. And, broadly, as I said at the start, it's the difference between what established teams do, which is the best workplace in the past and what disruptive organizations do which is the workplace of the future so quick summary of the five number one fit versus diversity bring diverse thinking to the team by attracting people who aren't a perfect fit two information versus authority so people need authority to act on information rather than being forced to pass that information up the chain of command for decision making number three training versus talent it's just as important for the organization to learn from talented individuals as to train them regardless of their role experience or seniority Number four, engagement versus meaning. So money alone is not enough and artificial engagement techniques aren't enough. The best people also want work with meaning in a place where they feel proud to work. And last, policy versus judgment. Build the judgment of your team members and then allow them to exercise that judgment. Creating this workplace culture absolutely takes time and effort, but it's time well spent and it's critical for future success. If you've always said your people are your biggest asset, now is the time to invest in them. So I hope you enjoyed learning about and reflecting on what makes up the best workplace on earth. More importantly, I hope you put that into action in your own workplace. If you'd like some help with me, there are two things I can do to help you. One is I host strategic planning facilitation sessions. We bring together the senior leaders in your organization and we have a look at your current workplace We then assess what the best workplace for your organization might look like, and then you identify the gap. So then you can work together to bridge that gap. The second thing I do for leaders and managers is run a workshop about how you create the best workplace on earth. And we go through each of these five things in a bit more detail. We do some assessment. We do some exercises. We help all the participants identify specific things that they can do with their team to bridge the gap between where they are now and where they'd like to be to create the best workplace on earth. If you'd like to know more, please get in touch at gihanperera.com. So as I said at the start, this is the last episode for 2018. I wish you all a safe and happy Christmas period for us here in Australia. It's uh, enjoying some time off over summer, wherever you are in the world. I hope you've had a great 2018 and all the best for the year ahead. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. 
Now, if you want to know what's on the horizon for the future, download my app, Fit for the Future, for your iPhone or your Android phone. And I created this app because many people come up to me after my keynote conference presentations and ask me how I do my own research, what blogs I read, what podcasts I listen to, what books I read, and they want some recommendations so that they can become fit for the future as well. So I created this app. I update it regularly with news, articles, videos, book recommendations, and other resources to help you become fit for the future. It's free and it's ad-free, so head over to the iTunes store or the Google Play store and just search for Fit for the Future and you'll find my app there. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and found something valuable for your personal and professional life. And if you did get some value from it, I would love it if you could do me a favor and give me a review and a rating in the iTunes store, in the podcast area. And that helps to promote it to other people as well. And if you want me to share ideas like this live at your next conference, then check out my speaking topics and workshop topics at gihanspeaks.com. And if you want to engage with me in other ways, go to gihanparera.com, where you can find my blog, my newsletter, my podcast, videos, and my free webinars series. They're all free and they're all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team, and of course yourself, that you can become fit for the future. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. For show notes, past episodes, and more, visit gihanperera.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.